Because we thank you, Father, that we can gather here together in your name. We thank you, Lord, that you are a beautiful God, a lovely God, a God of grace and a God of peace. Father, it's so good that we can gather together in your name in this place. And through your spirit, Father, to learn of you and to grow in you. We pray, Father, that as we look into your word this morning, that, Father, you would change us, Lord. That you would help us, Father, motivate us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Back in 1810, there was a, a boy that was born. His name was Phineas. Kind of like in Phineas and Ferb. This was a different Phineas. Young Phineas, when he was born, was given a gift from his grandfather. He was given a deed to a piece of land in Connecticut called Ivy Island. And all through young Phineas's life, as he grew up, his parents were reminding him of what a special boy he was. Because unlike all of his friends, Phineas was a landowner. Phineas had this inheritance, this wonderful inheritance to look forward to, Ivy Island. And young Phineas would lay in his bed at night and he would dream about his island, how beautiful it was, how someday he would go and how someday he would build a big house and how he would live on this beautiful Ivy Island. All through his life, Phineas begged and pleaded with his parents, can I go and just see that island? I just want to see it. And finally, when he was 10 years old, his dad agreed. It was quite a long ride. It was a day's travel to get there. So early in the morning, the father and a couple of hired hands packed up the wagon and hitched up the horses and off they went. Year was 1820, close to Phineas's 10th birthday. And every time they got to the top of a hill, Phineas would say, Is it there? Can I see it yet? And the father would say, Not yet, not yet, just wait. And almost towards the evening, as they were coming up a last hill, the father said, Okay, Phineas, you can see it from the top of the next hill. And Phineas couldn't wait. He jumped out of the wagon. He ran up to the top of the hill. And he stood there on the hill. And there it was. Ivy Island. Two acres of snake-infested swampland. Absolutely and completely worthless. You see, his grandfather had played a joke on young Phineas. His grandfather had given him a deed to this ivy island, but there was no ivy, and there was no island. All there was was disappointment. Something that Phineas had looked forward to, had dreamt about his entire life, there it was. There it lay, absolute worthless. And something inside young Phineas changed that day. Phineas who had been deceived, went on to become a deceiver. Most of us have never heard his name Phineas before, but we may know him by another name, his full name, Phineas Taylor Barnum, or P.T. Barnum of Barnum and Bailey Circuses. It was he who went on to coin the phrase, there is a sucker born every minute, and he spent his entire life proving that that was true. He who had been deceived went on to deceive 
millions of people through his lifetime to earn a buck for himself. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is there ever a time in your life when you were disappointed? When you felt let down? When something that you thought was going to be wonderful turned out to be an incredible disappointment? Oh, you, you were going to get a new computer or you were going to get a new car and you had heard all the hype about it and you were so excited and when you finally get it, it just doesn't live up to your expectations. Let me ask you a little deeper question. Have you ever felt that way about the church? Have you ever felt deceived? Have you ever felt disappointed? You thought, man, this Christianity thing is going to be wonderful. It's going to be spectacular. It's going to be magical. And yet, your expectations didn't seem to be lived up to. And you were disappointed with what you found within Christianity. I want us to turn our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. This is a great passage of Scripture. This isn't a passage of Scripture that most people know. It's one of these kind of un, undiscovered gems often that we find within the Bible. It's a passage that has spoken to me in my life many times. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. It says this, When the Lord was about to take Elijah up into heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. And so they went down to Bethel. And the company of the prophets there at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, but don't speak of it. And then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. And so they went down to Jericho. And the company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, but do not speak of it. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. And so the two of them walked on. And 50 men from the company of the prophets went at a short distance and facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. And Elijah took his cloak and he rolled it up and he struck the water with it. And the water divided to the right and to the left. And the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? And Elisha replied, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Anybody here like flying in airplanes? Some of you? You know, how many here would say flying in an airplane is an enjoyable experience for you? Now let me ask you the second question. Have you done much of it? <laughs> because it seems to me that the amount you've actually flown is in direct inverse proportion to the enjoyment of it. You see, when I was a kid, first time I ever flew in an airplane, I remember that experience. I remember being at the airport. I remember waiting at the gate. And finally the time came, and we got in the plane, and the plane taxis out to the runway, and it's sitting there, and the engines are revving up, and you're so excited, and you're like, your nose is against the glass. And finally they release the brakes, and that 
plane starts screaming down the runway and it takes off and you get higher and higher and the roads and the cars and the people and everything becomes so small. I just sat there, transfixed by it, watching it hour after hour until we got to Florida. It was magical. It was wonderful. And then after a couple more times, it lost its magic. (laughs) And especially as we started flying back and forth from Kuwait, 14, 15 hours at a shot, and you're going here and you're going there. And after a while, flying in an airplane is no longer an experience to be enjoyed. It's an ordeal to be endured. And you just say to yourself, give me a magazine let me sleep through this thing. Let me just endure the next 10 hours so I can get to my destination. Familiarity breeds contempt. Church can become like that. Our spiritual lives can become like that. If we're not careful, apathy can set in. And what was once an enjoyable, a magical experience, a meeting together corporately with the living God can become just a boring routine that we begin to dread and think, man, there's other things I'd rather be doing on my Sunday morning. It's not what God intends for us. In this passage that I read this morning, there are three points that I want to draw out of it. Number one, for us as Christians, it is important that we always finish what we start that we always finish what we start. You have to understand the context of the story. Elijah had been one of the greatest prophets that Israel had ever known. Elijah had done amazing miracles. Remember that time he was up on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal? And and they have this incredible face-off and all the prophets of Baal get killed and the fire comes down from heaven and then Elijah, fearing for his life, runs away and he's hiding under a tree and God comes and meets with him and he says, Elijah, you can't do this by yourself. You gotta bring someone to help you in your ministry. And he directs him to go and find Elisha. And let me just stop there and say this to you. Every Christian, every person who is a believer in Christ should be a mentor. Let me ask you a question. Are you as a Christian mentoring someone in your life? Are you intentionally imputing yourself, your life, into the life of another person? Are you duplicating yourself? Because you're not going to be here forever. And someday there's someone else that's going to come up and be in that position that you're in. Are we mentoring people? One of the problems in the church today is that we don't have enough leadership. And the reason we don't have leadership is because those of us that are in the church aren't mentoring people. We aren't bringing people up. We aren't training people on a one-on-one level. Anyways, Elijah goes and he finds this guy called Elisha. And Elisha is out and he has two oxen and he has a plow. Now, Elisha was a farmer. The oxen and the plow were his livelihood. Oxen were very expensive in those days. The plow was very expensive. This represented his entire life. It was the tools of his trade. If he was a fisherman, that would have been his boat and his nets. If he was in the world today, if he was a salesman, it would have been his car and his laptop computer. It represented what he needed to do his job. And Elijah comes along and he says, Elisha, follow me. And what does Elisha do? Immediately, he kills the oxen, he burns the plow, 
And he offers up an offering to God, a burnt offering to God. In other words, he was burning his bridges behind him. He was saying, there's no going back to being a farmer. My livelihood, these two cows, these two oxen in this plow, my livelihood, I'm burning them, I'm getting rid of them, I'm realizing there's no going back. There's no going back to what I was before. And when we become Christians, that's what God wants to do in each one of our life. He wants to remind us that once you make the decision to give your life to Jesus Christ, there is no going back. There is no returning to what you were before. Now the problem is, is that many of us come to Christ, I mean it's not a problem, it's a wonderful thing, but many of us come to Christ at a fairly early age. You know, you don't hear a lot of testimonies like this. You know, I was into drugs, and I was into all kinds of nasty things, and I was into murder, and, 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 and then I gave my life to Jesus when I was four, you know. <laughs> well, there's only so much sin you can do before you're four, you know, kind of thing. I mean, very often, we, we come to Jesus very young, and so we don't understand what it is we've been saved from. But you don't really have to imagine very hard just look at someone who's about your age whose life is really messed up and say to yourself, that could be me. If I'd made the same decisions, if I'd gone down the same path, that could be me. There is no going back. When an airplane takes off from its destination, at some point in its journey, it will reach something called the point of no return. The point of no return means that there is insufficient fuel to return to where we came from. In other words, you either go forward or you crash. It's the point of no return. You get to a point where you have to say, you know what? We're now looking at the destination. We're not looking at the point of origin anymore. And our conversion is a point of no return. God says there's no going back. So Elijah has his eyes fixed on going forward. And so now here it is at the end of Elijah's life. Elisha knows Elijah is about to die. He's about to be taken from earth. And Elijah says, Elijah, I want you to stay here in Gilgal. I'm going forward. And what does Elisha say? No way, I'm going with you. And they get to Bethel. And Elijah says, Elisha, stay here in Bethel. I'm going over to Jericho. And Elisha says, no way, Elijah, I'm going with you. And they get to Jericho. And Elijah says, Elisha, stay here. I'm going over the Jordan. And Elisha says, no way, I'm staying here. I'm going forward. The point is this. That for all of us as Christians, there is always a point where there will be a tendency or a desire to want to stay where we're at. You know what? I've been on the missions trip. I've, 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 I've led DVBS, I've, I've done this or I've done that. Man, I have arrived. I am where God wants me to be. I remember the very first time I went on a short-term missions trip to Bolivia. I came back from Bolivia and on the way home from the airport, my mom turns around in the car and she says to me, well, I'm glad you got that out of your system. <laughs> and I said to her, you have no idea. <laughs> This did not get it out of my system. This has sparked a flame that hopefully is going to burn for the rest of my life. All through life, you're going to have people telling you to stay put. Even Christian teens have a tendency to make fun 
of really spiritual Christian teens. And I don't know why that is. You know, I, I heard some Christian teens once making fun of another Christian teen because they had gone to this party and this one Christian teen had decided that he wasn't going to drink because he didn't believe God wanted him to. And they were making fun of that kid. And it wasn't my place, but I felt like just shaking those two and saying, don't you understand this is the one that's doing what God wants in their life? Why are you making fun of this person? You should be trying to emulate this person. But you see, all through life, whenever you try to stand up, whenever you try to be different, whenever you try to seek God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength, there are going to be people who say to you, stay here. No, no, no. That's too religious. You got too much zeal in your life. You too much passion in your life. Just slow down. Just stop. Just, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. Just stay here. But that's not what God calls us to. God calls us to move forward, continually moving forward, continually moving towards Him. And the moment you stop, you're in trouble. And the moment you slow down, you're in trouble. Christianity is like riding a bike. You stop, you're going to fall off it. You're going to get yourself in trouble. We have to be constantly moving forward. Like Rick Warren writes about the lady who, who learned to play the trumpet when she was 90 years old. And he asked her, well, what are you going to do once you learn the trumpet? And she's thinking about, oh, I'm thinking about the, maybe learning the piano. <laughs> you know, here's someone who had a plan. 90 years old, she still had a plan. Bill Giesbrecht uh, sent me an email this week. Um, and it was entitled, uh, Hello, uh, Handsome, My Name is Rose. And it was about an 87-year-old woman who was attending university. And she got to be known in this university. I mean, here's an 87-year-old woman going to university. And, and hanging out with all these young people. And when she stood up at the end of her time there to give a commencement speech, she, she said this, when you stop, you, we do not stop playing because we get old. We get old because we stop playing. And it's true. The moment you stop learning, the moment you stop growing, the moment you stop enjoying, you're in trouble. Let me ask you a question. Are you moving forward? Are you moving forward in your faith? Is there growth? Is there progress? Are you closer to Jesus now than you were last year? Is there progression? Or have you stopped in Gilgal? Are you stuck in Bethel? Are you sticking around Jericho? Are you moving forward, number one? But number two... It's not just about finishing what you start. It's about knowing what you want. Elisha says, no way, Elijah. If you're going, I'm going. And so he follows him. And Elijah gets up to the Jordan River, takes off his cloak, whacks the water, and it parts like the Red Sea. Can you imagine that? Not bad. They walk across on dry ground. The river keeps, starts flowing behind them. They get across the Jordan River. And Elijah turns around and says to Elisha, Okay, Elijah, what do you want? What do you want? And without even batting an eye, what does Elisha say? I want twice what you have. I want twice your spirit. To that point, Elijah had been one of the greatest prophets 
Israel had ever known. He had done amazing things. He had just gone to the, 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 the Jordan River. He had whacked it with his robe. The thing had parted like the Red Sea. They'd walked across. And it wasn't like, wow. It was like, yeah, it's not bad. Why? Because that was the life of Elijah. Elijah did stuff like that every day. And they get across the Jordan. He says, Elisha, what do you want? And Elisha says, I want twice that. I want double that. And how does Elijah reply? A paraphrase. He says, wow, <laughs> that's a big request. Wow. You see, Elisha knew what he wanted, and he was willing to ask for it. You know our problem sometimes as Christians? We've lost our imagination. We no longer make big requests of God. We try to live the Christian life in our own strength and with our own resources. And so we never ask God to do the amazing, to do the miraculous in our presence anymore. And because we no longer ask him, he no longer does it. You go to prayer meetings, and you say, okay, let's have some prayer requests. What's a prayer request? Well, you know, I just want to pray for my big toe, because it's hurting me. I know I don't have any problem with praying for a big toe. That's fine. You know, big toes are a part of your body, and that's fine. We'll pray for the big toe. Anybody else have a prayer request? Well, I want to pray for my aunt, because she's not feeling too well right now. Okay. Ant isn't feeling too well, let's, let's pray for the ant. And we go on and we go on and we go on and we never leave the realm of the immediate. You know what I want just once? What I want just once is when we say, I want a prayer request. I want someone to stand up and say, I want to pray that every person in North America comes to Jesus Christ this year. Alright? That's what I want someone to pray for. I want someone to say, I pray for peace in the Middle East, that God would completely and utterly change the heart of the Muslim people. Hey, that's a good one. I'll pray for that. I want to pray for the Sudan, that God would raise up a new generation, that the Sudan would completely become Christian. That's a good prayer request. We don't ask God for the miraculous. We don't make big requests of God. Prayer is an amazing thing. Prayer opens up the storehouse of the blessings of the almighty, infinite creator of heaven. God says, come on in. Take whatever you want. And we walk in and we pick up a penny and we walk out with it. And we think we're richer because of it. God says... Ask, and you shall receive. But we don't ask, so we don't receive. Let me ask you a question this morning. If God were to show up right now and ask you, what do you want? What do you want? Make your request. What would you ask him for? He said that to Solomon. Solomon, what do you want? And Solomon immediately said, I know what I want. 
I want wisdom to rule your people. And what did God say? You got it. And he went on to, to, to do amazing things with the wisdom that God had given him. But if God were to say to you this morning, what do you want? What would you ask him for? I remember personally, I went to a conference called Urbana years ago. I heard a guy by the name of Dr. Tony Campola get up and speak. First time I'd ever heard a really powerful message spoken from a pulpit. And I said, God, I want that. I want double what Tony Campola has. I don't think, I don't know if I got double what Tony Campola has, but I knew what I wanted. So what do you want? What do you want? I always get nervous when Aaron prays that God would calm my nerves because I'm always sitting there thinking to myself, I'm not nervous. Should I be? Is there something I don't know about? Or I not? And then I start getting nervous because I'm not nervous. Is that just weird? Or I don't know. Anyways, it's, it's cool. Thank you. Thank you for the prayer request. Next time, though, not an end of nerves. Pray that he would blow the roof off the church and that fire would proceed from... No, okay. I just, okay. What would God double in your life? What would your life look like if tomorrow God doubled something in your life? What if tomorrow God doubled your passion for worship? What would your life look like? If tomorrow God doubled your passion for reading the Bible, what would change? If he doubled your service, if, 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 he, if he doubled your prayer life, if he, if he doubled your love for your children or your desire to, to love your spouse, what would your life be like if God doubled your request today? Finishing what you start, knowing what you want. And lastly, getting what you came for. How does the story end? Well, they're walking along and talking, and suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appear, and it separated the two of them. And Elijah's taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. And Elisha sees this and cries out, My father, my father, the chariots of horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. And he picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah. And he went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And he took the cloak that had fallen from him and he struck the water with it. Where now is the God of Elijah, he asked. And when he had struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left and he crossed over. And the company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. That Elisha got what he wanted. He got what he came for. He took the cloak. He did the exact same thing that Elijah had done. It parted. And if you go on to look at the life of Elisha, you will see that from this point forward, what Elijah do what Elisha does for God is incredible. The miracles, the things that... Elisha does. I mean, it's amazing. Read the story. That Elisha doubles the ministry of Elijah. He got what he wanted. His request was granted. You know, our conference website has a 
something called the Go Mission website. And if you've not been to the conference website, I really encourage you strongly to go. You can go to our own website, lemmc.com, and click on the conference website. There's also a link to another website called the Go Mission website, which talks about a little bit of the mission uh, focus of where we as a denomination are going. It has some interesting articles on that. But one of the things that, that, that I hear people saying all the time is the problem with the North American church is that we have too many buildings, too much organization, too much structure. And you know what? Last week I wrote an article about that to say, you know what? The, the, it isn't in the building. It isn't in the fact that we're distracted. The problem with the North American church is that we are apathetic, that we have lost our passion, that we are resting in our own strength, that we're not attempting the impossible for God. When I lived in Kuwait in 1998, we had heard through a newspaper article that there was a revival that was happening in Brownsville, Florida. And a couple of us as pastors were saying, yeah, I was reading this newspaper article and and man, there, there seems like there's really amazing things God's doing in Brownsville. And so our senior pastor at the time, he said, well, why don't we go? And we kind of go, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, we're in Kuwait, you know, Brownsville, other side of the, you know, ocean. And he says, I'm serious. Why don't we go? We kind of looked at him and we said, um, are we allowed to do that? He said, yeah, let's all go. Let's all go check it out. And we went to the church with it. The church said it was a great idea. The funds were raised. We hopped on a plane. We arrived. We arrived around noon in Florida. We knew that the church meetings were starting at 7 o'clock in the evening. So we thought, let's just drive to the church. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon by that time. Let's just drive to the church to make sure that we know where it is. And then we'll go out for dinner. Come back around 6.30 and attend one of the services. Well, we got to the church at 4 o'clock. There was already a line for the 7 o'clock service. People start showing up 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the afternoon to go to church. They sit outside in the sun of Florida for 4 or 5 hours in order to go for these services. And so we thought, forget, forget dinner, we're just going to sit and get in line. And we're sitting there in line and we're looking at all these people. And we're saying, why are you here? And the person in front of us said, oh, we came from California, you know, because we hear that God is doing some amazing things here, and I want to be part of it. I want to find out what God is doing. The people behind us in line, oh, yeah, we drove four hours to be here. And man, we were here a couple weeks ago, and our lives are completely different because of it. And the time finally came, 7 o'clock finally came, and they opened up the doors to the church, and we all went inside. And I've never, I, I, I can't really explain it. I've never experienced anything like that in my life where there's such a profound presence of God that even walking into the building, people began to sob and people began to cry and weep openly. The service hadn't even started and people's lives were already being changed. We sat down, we had the service. Hundreds of people came forward. They were prayed for, they were ministered to, lives were changed. All the testimonies that we kept hearing of how people were being changed by that. And in the midst of all of that, God did a work in my own life. We all as pastors, all five of us, went back to Kuwait. And I tell you what, the church in Kuwait was different from that point on. We went from maybe 10 baptisms a month to about 50, 60 baptisms a month. We began seeing a lot of the stuff that God was doing in Brownsville, he started doing in Kuwait. We weren't 
trying to do it. We weren't pushing it. It just started happening. It was kind of as if God was saying to us, if you hunger and if you thirst and if you do something about it, then I will open up the doors of heaven. If you do your part, I'll do my part. If you take a step of obedience, then I will reward that obedience with blessing. So let me ask you a question as we close the service. Is there a step of obedience that God is wanting you to take? And so far you haven't taken it. Is there something that God is wanting you to do and you're not doing it? You know, I'm grateful that we have young people in this congregation who in the last year have taken a step of obedience. You heard while I was gone, Susie Redekob come up and say, you know, God laid on her heart to go to China. And they went to China and God's blessed that decision. You have other young people that went to passion and because they made that decision to take time out of their schedule, to, to ra- pay that money, to, the expense that took, that God blessed their lives through that. Is there something else that God is asking all of us to do? Let me ask you the question I started with. Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied with what you have? Or if you are truly honest, if you were truly honest, you would say, you know what? I'm a little disappointed. I'm a little hungry. I don't believe I have all of God that I want. I believe there's more. John 1, 47, it says that when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to them, here's a true Israelite in who there is nothing false. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were under a fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. Nathanael comes and Jesus says, ah, Nathanael. He says, how do you know me? Oh, I saw you under the tree. Wow, you're the king of Israel. And Jesus kind of says, I'm the king of Israel because I saw you under a fig tree? You're going to see a lot bigger stuff than that, Nathaniel. Buckle your seatbelt. You're in for a fun ride. I think Jesus would say to each one of us this morning, there's more. There's more. You call me Lord. That's great. But there's more. There's more. We hunger for it. We ask him for it. If we're obedient to the open doors that God has placed before us, I believe that God wants to do something more. In each one of our lives, God wants to do something more. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that we may come. We may in your presence, Lord, enjoy this fellowship with one another. We can sing these songs, and Lord, we can celebrate your goodness and your faithfulness to us. But Father God, I just want to say this morning that I'm hungry. I want to know you more, Father. I want to know you in a new way, in a fresh way, in a living way. That Lord, we're not hungry here this morning for religion 
or for routine or for the same old, same old. We're not here just to sing the same songs and, and, and go away because church is over and that's what we're expected to do. Father, we want more. We want an experience of the living God. We want to leave different. Father, I pray that as there are people in this congregation this morning that are asking of you, that, Father, you would double their request. That, Father, as we are faithful and we come to you, Father, expectantly, asking, Father, for you to do a miracle in each one of our lives, that, Father, you would do that miracle. That, Lord, you will raise up a generation that are hungry for you, that are bold, that ask bold requests, that seek to change the world. For we know, Father, that when we seek to change the world in accordance with your will, when we seek to step out on that branch, that, Father, you do the impossible and you change nations. So, Father, we pray that this day you would meet us here in this place and change our hearts, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.